Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to this Philosophy Live event on the topic of Time's Arrow. Now, the composer Hector Berlioz once wrote that time is a great teacher. Unfortunately, it kills all its pupils. At the LSE, we'd call that a mixed teaching evaluation. (laughs) But it does tell us something about two different senses in which time might be said to have a direction. First of all, there's the subjective direction of time, the direction of our experience, the fact that we learn from the past and plan for the future. We can never plan for the past, remember the future, no matter how much we might like to. And then there's also this rather more objective arrow of time, the arrow of physics, the so-called thermodynamic arrow, the arrow that means, in very broad terms, ordered systems have a tendency to fall apart, uh, including our own bodies. Living organisms have to work constantly to resist that tendency to fall apart, and in the end, it gets all of us. We'll be thinking in this event about how the subjective arrow of time and the objective arrow of time relate to each other. And are they real, and how can we study them scientifically? How should we think about them? And it's a real pleasure to be joined by three panelists who are all approaching these topics of time and the experience of it and the basis of it from very different directions. And they are philosopher of physics, Karim Tebo, a cognitive neuroscientist and psychiatrist, and Giersch, and novelist, Claire North. I also should introduce our absent panelist, uh, Brian Roberts, my colleague at the LSE. I mean, really sadly, Brian put a lot of work into organizing this event. He put years of work into writing a book about these issues called Reversing the Arrow of Time, which you can buy outside this room and that is available uh, online as a PDF for free as well. And in fact, put over a a year of work into organizing this event to to launch the book. Uh, The first time we tried to schedule it, it was canceled due to a strike. The second time, We're all here except Brian, who woke up this morning with a high fever. Um, So I keep hoping he'll sort of run through the door at any minute, uh, coming to us from the future. But he's uh, he's not going to make it, sadly. But we do have a fantastic panel who I think can speak to the themes of Brian's book and the the great quality of it, as well as their own own research and and work. So I want to start with with you, Claire. So you, as, as a novelist, think a lot about our subjective experience of time. And I think that one of the the ways we can gain insight into time is through playing with it in imagination, through changing, imagining different ways of experiencing time. And I think that that's been a major guiding thought for you in in your fiction. I mean, how have you played with with time in your work? Uh, Goodness, I feel like civilian on this panel, but I'll give my best shot. Um, So I'm a science fiction writer. We muck around with time a lot. Science fiction generally has two major themes, apart from spaceships and aliens. Um, We project forward into the future. We are asked, sometimes professionally by governments, to speculate on what we think will happen. And the sad truth of our future speculations is that they are almost invariably about the present. 
most science fiction books, if you look back through, say, the golden era of science fiction, will go, well, in 2001, everyone's going to have jetpacks and space rockets. But almost invariably, the cultural constructs behind those ideas are a reflection on the society and the times in which those books are written. Arthur C. Clarke is a reflection of America in the 1960s. The Golden Age is a reflection of those ideas of thrusting capitalism. So science fiction as a writer, when we look to the future and we do try and speculate, what we almost invariably do is, in, is hold up a mirror to the present. We also, as science fiction writers, look back to the past and speculate on the great what-if question, the thing we are not allowed to do in history seminars, alas. Um, but again, when we speculate on the what-ifs, it tends to be literature's greatest human emotional juggling game of the emotional experience of time, of looking back on the past and considering it as a form of regret sometimes, a form of change, and almost invariably looking at the past to answer the question of how did I get here now. Very, very few books in any genre are written in the language of, well, I got up, I went to work, I experienced this story and nothing changed. Our experience of time and the way we tend to write it in all genres is, I got up, I went to work, and at the end of the day, I was different from who I was when I began. Mm. And most of literature, including science fiction, is very interested in that emotional experience of time as a human yeah. change, but also as a reflection, almost, of who we are in the moment, and also how we lie yeah. about the past. So you wrote this, this novel, The First 15 Lives of... Harry August, it was, I mean, tell us what, tell us how that, how that works. Very unusual in its use of time. Um, so, I don't remember the title. Uh, that was a book, um, the basic premise is that there is a character, Harry August, he's born in 1918, he lives his entire life, he dies, and then he's born again as a baby, but it's himself. So he comes back to 1918 and lives his life over and over and over mm. again. Um, and... It came about because I'm also a lighting engineer. I was working in reparatory theatre for the Royal Shakespeare Company, where every day is the same day repeated over and over again. But that is irrelevant <laughs> to the philosophy of time, or is it? Um, it was a way of poking again at that fundamental thing almost of regret, of wanting to look back and change the past, to change mm. who we are, but also of the reality that if you change the past, you have to change yourself. Who you are would not have come about were it not for the actions of the past. And humanity's very complicated relationship, emotionally, with change. Reminds me of the, uh, the idea from Nietzsche of eternal recurrence, that we should try to, to live in such a way as we, we, we wouldn't mind, or at least it wouldn't fill us with horror and dread, the thought of reliving our lives over and over again. I'm sort of, I mean, where, where are you with this? I'm, I'm sort of probably okay with eternal recurrence, maybe. I mean, the question is whether you remember the previous lives or not, right? And your, your protagonist does, right? Yes. I thought it would be more emotionally interesting, if you remember. It's partly because it also raises the issue of free will. This is the other thing we always think about when we yeah. talk about time. Is the future a set thing? Are we bound by the past? Mm. Is our path entirely already set by the actions of our parents, our ancestors? Is there any way to break free of that? And if you remember, you can be more aware of your agency mm. or lack of it. If you don't remember, you can bimble along thinking, oh, I'm doing something different this time. And it mm. might not be true. That each of those lives plays out differently because of the memories of the life before. Yes, differently, mm. but also the power of reality of the world around you to shape the same events. 
you may feel like you're acting with agency in your life, but World War II was going to happen regardless of your actions. The Cold War was going to happen. You are, to a certain extent, caught up in these massive sweeps of time and action that you want to have agency within, but don't necessarily do. Mm. Yeah, what about, uh, so Karen, should we bring you in on this? I mean, would you like to live your life over and over again <laughs> Etern for eternity? I, I, I wouldn't be able to answer this, yeah. I mean, it's give me another yeah. years. To see how it ends. Um, yeah. But I think, I, I think the, I've always liked this Nietzschean idea, and I, in some sense, it's not really supposed to be a thesis about what the universe is like. It's quite an interesting idea about a kind of deal to, yeah, I think the premise, the way he sets it up, is that a serpent comes to you in a dream and offers you this deal. And you should live yeah. such that if you get offered the deal, you'd grab it and be very kind of enthusiastic mm. about living your life. Enthusiastically there. do it all again. Um, but I think, I, think I, I, I guess if uh, I get run over, run over by a bus coming out of this meeting, I probably would yeah. do it again rather than nothing at all. It'll be even worse than. Brian being ill, <laughs> so um, so Claire, I also wanted to ask about your, your influences because right? you you play a lot with with time in your own work, but also the history of of sci-fi is full of famous playing around with with time. Do you give a, an example or two of experiments with time that you've you found particularly successful and that have been influential on you? Uh, from a literary point of view. Um, I think the two things to immediately leap to mind is obviously the godfather of time travel books, which is H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Is mm -hmm. it a good book? Probably not by modern standards. Is it one of the grandfathers of science fiction? Yes. And more to the point, it was one of the first kind of mainstream successful science fiction books mm -hmm. that really very strongly extrapolated a massive idea of the present tense to it. Communism, essentially, all the way forward. Um, so it was a glorious attempt to play with these ideas in a very speculative way um, and I think that's interesting I think that's it's it's a powerful example of thinking about the future from a very clearly biased position but then all literature is biased so fair play um, the other interesting example I think actually I think about time is Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Time which is a much more modern book um, and that's set over the rise and fall of a civilization it takes about 40,000 years to play out and one half of the narrative is a civilization rising, minor spoiler, this is a civilization of enormous genetically altered spiders. And the other half of the narrative is a ship of humans constantly falling in and out of cryosleep. So you have these two running narratives of a very personal, very immediate human experience of one life being lived and slowly aging in what feels like real terms to the humans, feels like, well, it's another year's past, another year's past, but actually 10,000 years have passed, while simultaneously attempting to convey the narrative of an entire civilization rising and falling, and how those two pair up. It's a brilliant read. Go by. Adrian Tchaikovsky for the win. Um, but it does, it does a really interesting way of conveying the emotional power of both of these experiences, mm. the massively long-term and the impact of the past on the civilization, the development of the civilization and how it's trapped yeah. by that past, and also the very real and immediate human experience of waking up every 10,000 years going, I don't know what's mm. happening and I feel a bit hungover and confused. I totally agree. I read that book recently as well and just I love that idea of sort of deep time we can think of the, the time scale of an individual human life, but then also this idea of deep time, evolutionary time, the time over which whole species 
change. It's very, very hard to write narrative fiction about deep time, I think, about the story of a species rather than an individual. And so when you find a book that does that, it's doing something very unusual. Mm. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it, it really manages to carry an emotional thread because, again, I think Adrian Tchaikovsky understands that our experience of time is emotional. When we look back through our days, we don't necessarily remember brushing our teeth, whatever, eating breakfast. We remember an emotion related to a peak experience in that day. Mm. Yeah, so on this theme of, sort of emotions and our experience of time, I'd love to bring you in, Anne, as well, because uh, a lot of your work concerns distortions of the experience of time. Like what happens when our typical experience of time is altered in some way? For example, by, by schizophrenia. It's one of the major yeah. focuses of your work. And usually I apologize first when I'm talking about time because um, it's really so unusual, the experience, that it's difficult to grasp. Usually what we call changed experience of time is when we are emotional and it goes faster or when we have um, fever then it goes faster too <laughs> uh, so for brian it must go very fast now. oh in, in fever okay in fever. yeah oh great way to bring brian into the conversation yeah <laughs> fever speeds up our experience of time yeah, it, really. it was the first um, manipulation uh, to test an effect on how you experience time. And yet um, when, when you're in a fever, it feels like it's going on for forever. Like, in what sense is it speeding up? The, the evaluation of duration is changed. Right. And this is what you think about first when you think about time, duration. But in fact, this is not what is changed in patients with schizophrenia or, or even with deep depression. Uh, because they report very strange things that question what is a given for us. For usually we think that time is continuous. Right. That's how we experience it. Also, I must say that uh, since I give conference, there is always one or two people who contest this. So <laughs> we can speak about this later. But um, yeah, usually we experience time as being continuous and, and patients with schizophrenia, sometimes they report that time has disappeared or that when they do a movement, the uh, tactile feedback comes with a delay um, it's like they feel sluggish inside it's, it's worse than that. It's not continuous anymore sometimes. Uh, there is a famous citation where the patient says, there is all this now, 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 uh -huh. all crazy and without order or rule. And it, yeah. the, the patient adds that uh, it's the same with himself, that his ego is uh, one ego at some time and another ego at another time. So that is, there is this old idea of um, um, relation between the sense of time and self. Mm -hmm. uh, because we feel that time is continuous because we can interact with the environment. We are in immersion, we feel connected. Mm -hmm. we, we feel we can always reach the table uh, look around us and everything is continuous 
but for those patients, it's not continuous anymore. And this leads to the question of um, what might, makes us feel that time is continuous, since it can be disrupted, mm -hmm. right? And this is what I'm trying to understand. Yeah. Great, yeah, I'm wondering how, how, if at all, can we get a sense of what it is like to be someone with schizophrenia who no longer experiences time as continuous? I'm sort of imagining you know, when you're under strobe lights or something and your, your visual experience just seems to jump. Is it yeah. something a bit like that, but all the time? Uh, they report stroboscopic vision sometimes, but this is really, really rare. And also, it's not as if time is completely disappearing for them. They can walk, they can speak, so they can't do that without time. And they are influenced by previous intervals of time this can be shown experimentally, but there's a lot that works very well, in fact. Mm. But nonetheless, the experience of time is disrupted, at least at some moments. And it's very, very deeply related with how they feel immersed in the world and how they feel themselves as being able to interact mm. with the world. So there's still an arrow of time for them. You know, they still recognize themselves as having a past and a, and a future. Well, yeah, but they, of course, they yeah. know what is past, or they know what, what is future. But also, um, probably, there is another level where they can be disrupted. Is, um, they have lots of intrusive thoughts. And this is also something where we probably differ and beyond schizophrenia. Um, we can also differ on how we imagine things, how we are absorbed in these imaginations, and how this disrupts the, um, the, the line of thoughts, let's say. Mm. I'm sure our other panelists must have questions about, uh, about this, so please feel free to, to jump in with any questions you have. I mean, I, I'm wondering about how this relates to the phenomenon of ego dissolution. You get some people who, particularly when sort of taking psychedelic drugs, I suppose, who then report this sense of the self dissolving, just no longer experiencing a sense of self. Is this like a way of, is this similar to, to schizophrenia in, in a way? Um, I, I wouldn't, well, there is a risk of developing a crisis when you take some drugs, that's true. Um, but you can experience these uh, timing disorders under psychedelics and not becoming uh, a psychotic. So I think um, this is slightly different, um, also because it's just acute and you know the context. And for the patients, it's really horrific because they don't understand what happens and it doesn't make sense. There is also some people who then describe as if there was a rainfall between them and the world because they can't reach the world. A what? A rain, rainfall? Waterfall. Rain, waterfall. waterfall. Like a waterfall. Like, um, yeah, yeah, or, or um, Screaming. glass, mm. glass clock. As if they would be under a clock glass and they can't reach even just the table. It's like there's an extra, there's this intermediary between their actions and the world. Exactly. Like fog or soup or something. Yes. They've got to get through. Yes, and, and that's, this is really the relation between time and self, because I think that 
there is no such thing as continuous processing in the brain. It's not really continuous. Mm -hmm. And we nonetheless have this idea of continuity, which is so strong. Mm -hmm. And so we have to explain this. And, and my idea is that this is possible because you can always interact with the world, um, check what is happening, at any moment, you can reset the moment where you are looking and interacting with the world. And if this doesn't work, then... then if you were in sensory deprivation, you would lose this, this ability to um, be in sync with the world. Yeah, yeah. It, it's mainly how you plan your action and how you get feedback and how you ignore also sometimes little information that is non-pertinent. I think we, the brain is doing a lot so that we can have this impression of continuity. We are ignoring a lot of non-pertinent information. Think about when you are walking, then uh, you have this motion because you are walking and you are even walking on the, on, on the vertical axis and you can record yourself while you are walking and then you, you look at the video and you see all these motions and it's incredible. That's something that you don't see at all. Everything is stable, the environment is stable and it's the same for space and, and time. So you, you are coming to great, you, you, your brain is working a lot so that everything stays stable in time and mm. space. And this might be impaired in yeah. Affected or working differently yeah. in patients. Just that, that image of the brain of a, of a sort of gyroscope, I suppose, just constantly working to orient us to the environment. And schizophrenia as being a, a breakdown of this, you sort of lose that orientation. Something like that, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, is this a view, and ultimately, on which our ordinary sense of Time as continuous, as just flowing, this metaphor of flowing stream of, of experience. Is it a view on which that's ultimately a kind of illusion? Well, it's always a little bit difficult to explain how we reach this continuity because, in fact, when you, uh, when you record experimentally how precise we can be when we try to distinguish events in time, in fact, we are very bad. Uh, we need something like 30 to 50 milliseconds between events to, to detect that there is an asynchrony, for example. And on your um, TV screen, it's uh, an asynchrony of uh, 17 milliseconds only. Mm. Um, so 50 is a lot, and if it's audiovisual, you need something like 100 milliseconds. Depends on the complexity of the uh, of the stimuli. So you, you are, we are not very good at distinguishing events in time. So the paradox is, how do we reach this time con uh, of continuity while also having this window yeah. where everything is synchronous? And when you think about it, we're very easily fooled, aren't we? That if, if you think of cinema, even very early cinema with. Um, 25 frames per second or, yes. or even less is enough to fool you into yes. thinking there's this continuous motion going on. So it's like our brain is always constantly working to, to see continuity even where really yeah, there's discreteness. Absolutely, and, and there is even these uh, experiments uh, where you have one 
one, one square, let's say, and another square, and then you feel a motion between the two. And if you change the color between the two squares, the first one is, let's say, green, the second one is, let's say, mm. red, then you even your brain is working so that he sees the the the, the space where the change of color is happening. Yeah. Even so, in fact, there is only one square and one square. There is no trajectory. So your brain edits the past almost. This is what I find really freaky about this: the sort yes. of colorify where two discrete stimuli they change color. Your brain interprets it interprets it as a single continuous moving dot that changes color halfway through exactly. so it edits the past to make sense yes. so to create this continuous stream of experience where there's a single moving object exactly it's sort of disturbing to think it's 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 the recent past as well that is getting getting messed around with by this this system yeah you can even change the order sometimes so do you want to sort of give us some insight into the sort of experimental techniques you, you use in your sort of day-to-day -day work to study these sorts of phenomena. So you, presumably you, you work with patients with schizophrenia. I mean, how do you, I suppose, how do you get beyond their reports and what they're telling you to sort of the underlying truth of what they're experiencing? So, so we, I am really an experimentalist, so I am using only squares. <laughs> so sort of coloured colored squares. No, no, that, that was not my experiment. Oh, right. uh, it's, um, but what we try to see how the patients are experiencing time, not how they judge time, right? So of course we can ask them about whether two squares are simultaneous or asynchronous, but that's not enough to understand how you use time because in, in everyday life, you don't aim at evaluating whether there was only one minute before or two minutes. We, we don't use that a lot, but we, we have to be prepared to do things. Uh, the typical example is when you are in front of a red light and you are waiting for the red light to become green, then uh, you don't know about time, you, you, you only know you, you're waiting for the light to become green so that you can press on the accelerator and go forward. And uh, you experience the sense of time only if for once the green light becomes green very late and then you become a, a little bit impatient. That's where you become conscious of time. But usually, it doesn't, it's not conscious. But still, you can show experimentally that the longer the delay and the better you are prepared. So you benefit from the passage of time to get prepared. And that's a very easy way, very old experiment, to measure how you implicitly, how you benefit incidentally benefit from the passage of time without thinking about it. Because, in fact, uh, some people in uh, timing research say that brain is time. It's not, our aim is not judging time. It's just that we are doing things in time. Mm. We are the slaves of the arrow of time, right? right? But there's always other things we're, we're judging, typically not time. I mean, got the recent cultural invention of watches, right? But apart from when we're looking at 
watches and clocks. Time is just something that happens to us while we're doing other things. Exactly. And, and we need watches because we are very bad at estimating time. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so Claire, it'd be good to bring in, in you on this stuff because you must be very interested in this sort of scientific work on the experience of time, I suppose, as a, a kind of source of inspiration. Um, yes. <laughs> that was quite general, but yes. Um, I think the two things that I find really interesting about, well, actually, three things I find really interesting about this is. Um, First, kind of when you describe the experience of the red light, the thing that keeps on popping into my head in a very amateur level is kind of the distinction between the brain functioning in a predictive and a sensory way. Um, so I am waiting assessment for autism for three years because of the NHS being screwed by the government. Um, so one of the reasons I'm waiting this assessment is because when I get very, very tired, everything becomes sensory overload. Um, I will find myself unable to walk down a street because the sound of the rattling plastic on a scaffolding, the gaps between the pavements, the smell of the street is suddenly, it's, it's immediate is the word I'm looking for here. It's immediate and it's too much and it stops everything dead in its tracks. And I think it's a very, very different neurodiverse manifestation to mm. schizophrenia, but it is that experience of the predictive side of the brain, the side that is phasing out all of this information, going irrelevant, 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 get to the big D line ceasing to function and the sensory part trying to make sense of what's going on around it. And that's why it's called sensory overload because the predictive part of the brain is always serving to help us in a way. It's helping us save glucose. It saves us time if when we're sat in front of a red light we're not having to try and construct a new instance of what we think is going to happen next. If we can just go red light means green light next. And from a writing point of view, most writing is predicated on using that prediction. We feel this great surge of comfort and glucose go, oh, that's nice and easy. We go, once upon a time, there lived a happy prince and princess, and they were like, oh, yes, I know this. This is a pattern of storytelling that is familiar and comforting. And if you then break that prediction and go, and they lived really miserably afterwards because patriarchy sucked, um, there is that jar of that does not fulfill my prediction. Um, mm -hmm. And so, from a writing point of view, there is a lot of messing around with predictions, which for a sense yeah. is also messing around with time. You mess around with the language of time, you mess around with the immediacy of it. Mm -hmm. One very common example you'll see of that in writing is switching between present and past tense. Past tense in books feels reassuring. This thing happened. It's truth. Even though the, our human construction of the past is almost invariably lies, mm -hmm. In eyewitness testimony for, for police, for example, it's the most unreliable form of testimony you can get. Our memories are mostly false. They're stories because that's easier to remember than sensory input. But you can play around with that. You can go, here is a comforting thing in the past. But if we switch to present tense, yeah. it has this jarring effect of immediacy, of shock, of, oh, I'm not quite sure what ground we stand on. The sands could shift. They might not live happily ever after. Um, and so suddenly, from a writing point of view, I'm very interested in how the human brain relates to that predictive aspect of how we exist and the storytelling aspect of how we construct our reality. Thanks. We think of uh, Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell books and how they, they use this very well, that you're taking a period of history that is taught in schools and incredibly well known and you just expect it to be this list of solid facts and then it's this present tense. You're suddenly there and things are very unpredictable. Yeah. It's, it's one of the glorious tricks that I think she did so beautifully because the way the present tense works is to lure you in but also to inform you quite confidently through the use of that craft that your expectations could at any given moment be kicked. Mm. 
Yeah, so Anne, what do you think of this idea then of um, the experience of time varying as a part of neurodiversity? So, so not only in extreme cases like schizophrenia and, and not only when people are taking psychedelic drugs, but just being part of normal human variation that we may experience time in quite different ways. Yeah, the, 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 it has been already shown experimentally that, uh, for example, when you hear a sound and uh, um, a light, yeah, and then you see a light, and, and they are supposed to be simultaneous, um, the point of time where you see it as being really simultaneous can vary between individuals. Because the light and the and the sound that don't travel exactly at the same speed, so even if the object is sending the signal exactly at the same time, it doesn't arrive exactly at the same time in the brain, and then you have to correct it to feel it as being simultaneous, and there can be biases that differ between individuals. So these small things are already different. I I'm not quite sure what impact it has on the subjective experience, but it, mm. it already shows that we are not all equal uh, with the experience, well, with how we process information at least. Um, and, and then, um, well, uh, I, I think there is really, we, we discover more and more differences between individuals. For example, you, you may have heard about aphantasia, uh, where um, we are not equal uh, with being able to imagine uh, a memory. Uh, how vivid this memory is varies uh, between individuals, and how we can superimpose um, we, with what we are saying. Uh, for example, I can imagine three apples, uh, now, yeah. just now, and, and maybe not everyone can do that. It's and incredible how this varies, right? That yes, some yeah. people, if you say imagine three apples, they report having this very, very vivid mental image exactly. that is as vivid as their ordinary experience. And some people will, will just say, I, I imagine that there's no, there's no apples, I can't do that. Exactly. And I think we should do something like that with timing. Mm. Uh, you mean for like your own past or for immediate events that have just happened? Yeah, how you feel time. Uh, well, there is in, indeed several questions we can ask about uh, the representation of time. There are people who think that the future is behind because they can't see it. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, But there, there is also this uh, how you live, uh, how you really experience time. If, if you imagine is it as really linear or not linear, mm -hmm. or maybe a circle, <coughs> an ellipse, uh, or whether some people experience some uh, gaps. I, I mean, this is the kind of question even psychiatrists don't dare to ask to their patients because it feels weird um, to them. We have this strong impression of continuity, a majority of us, so it's very difficult to imagine that it can be otherwise, but of course we won't know if we don't ask. So we should ask more, and, and maybe we would have surprises, who knows? <laughs> yeah, so it will, will soon be time to take your questions from the audience, so please do start thinking now about what questions you might like to ask. That includes the people who are watching us online. Uh, we'd love to get questions from the online audience as well.
But first, I mean, let's turn to you, Karim, and let's bring out the physics, you know, because we've been talking about the experience of time, what time is like for us as beings who live in it. But there's also this other side of the story as well, which is what time objectively is in the world, according to contemporary physics. What so, is time? I mean, that's a big question. Um, I think like, one way of thinking about the problem is that coming from this kind of experiential, human, biological even, aspect, like kind of perspective, time is an incredibly rich concept. Um, but if you look at time from a quite kind of more physics or mathematical perspective, it's quite a thin concept. And so the actual kind of story about connecting them together, um, I think it's something that, that's it's really a huge intellectual project that may take centuries, if not, if not longer. Um, what we can say about time, I think, um, ultimately really starts with the kind of mathematization of, of, of the science of time, um, probably going back few hundred years. Um, one idea I, I particularly like, which I think really chimes with some of the things that uh, Anne was saying uh, before, is actually the connection between time and change. Uh, and I was going to read a, a quote for you, which I particularly like, uh, from the kind of late 19th century philosopher. Uh, it's very short. Uh, Ernst Mark. Uh, and so, so time, so Mark said the following, um, it's utterly beyond our power to measure the changes of things by time. Quite the contrary, time is an abstraction at which we arrive by the means of the change of things. And so there's, a, there's a, actually a quite precise way of, of cashing this out in a mathematical way, of actually thinking about um, the kinds of time that we use in, in physics as an aggregation of motion. And in some ways it seems a little bit like this idea of the brain kind of abstracting uh, continuity out of the changes that we, we see in the world. You can do something similar in physics and kind of have time as something that comes out as, a, as a, a, a mathematical quantity from the kind of averaging or, or um, uh, kind of the uh, moderation of change that we see in the world. Mm. So there's two ways of thinking about how time relates to change. You know, change is something that happens in time versus time as just an abstraction from lots of and changes. And this is how, if you think about going back to, to using the, the rotation of the Earth, or um, the Earth going around the Sun, time really coming from these, these regular motions. And the same on your, on your watch or a pendulum, that we construct kind of regular um, like bodies which go through regular motions that we can use to mm. uh, kind of keep track of time. But the measurement of time always relies on having something that just changes very, very regularly. Exactly. Clockwork. Exactly. Uh, and so that, that gives us some notion of kind of grip on what the physics of time is. Uh, but I think and here's where things get a little bit complicated. Um, there's actually really three different things I think we should think about as time. Um, and the most basic one really is just an ordering of events. It's kind of like time order structure, um, which doesn't have a direction. It just means things follow each other. Uh, and the second one is this kind of more, um, a little bit more kind of content where time has some kind of distance or duration. So we can imagine, as well as having an ordering, we've got some kind of um, mm -hmm. measure of, of, of gap gaps between events. And the third and most kind of complex thing, uh, which unfortunately we don't have Brian to talk about because he's the expert, is the arrow of time. So we don't, we don't just have an ordering of events, we don't just yeah. have like time distances between events, we actually have a difference between the past and the future. 
And whereas um, certainly there's a huge amount that we, we can say and we can kind of confirm for experiments, particularly from general relativity, about the first two senses of time, and we really have a fantastic theory of time that's very well tested, that tells us really a lot of the structure about the extent to which mm. we have ordering and duration. Yeah. Um, we really don't have a, a kind of complete, full, worked out theory of time direction. The kind of fundamental laws of physics don't tell us the difference between the past mm. and the future. And so, in some sense, it's still a bit of a mystery how we connect up that final structure of time, the ordering, the kind of direction of time, mm. with the kind of basic laws of the universe. Yeah. Uh, the kind of most popular proposal is that it's somehow connected to the very early universe and how the universe was configured. But telling a complete story from that to the direction of our experience of the past yeah. and future is something I think we're centuries away from, perhaps. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly, it's a conceptually difficult topic. It's inherently quite mind-bending. Do you think you could sort of explain in, in simple terms, I guess, how our understanding of time was transformed by general relativity? Because physicists sure. seem very clear that this was a real revolution in and how so we, we really, think about time. Um, these concepts of ordering and the dis temporal distances in a kind of older framework before relativity theory, these were things that we could talk about across very different parts of space. So, so if so the, the, uh, Paul Bryan, he's sick in his bed, um, the time ordering and time du and durations for him uh, in, I think, North London uh, are going to be the same for, for us in, in, at the LSE. Um, you just get objective facts about what is simultaneous exactly. with what. You have, so we have global notions of duration and global notions of time ordering. And really what happened with the relativistic revolution is to kind of localise to a great extent mm. what it means for things to be time ordered in a particular way. And more also, in fact, what it means for a particular duration to have happened. So we can only really mm. talk about durations at a local sense as yeah. being objective. If I want to talk about the, the distance between, temporal distance between two events that happen far away, it depends mm. how fast I'm moving, actually, what right. that would be. So it's no longer a product of um, a kind of observer-independent fact. It depends upon mm. my perspective, um, how some events are ordered, particularly when right. events are very far apart, and also what, how much duration passes between those events. So it's this loss of absolute, objective, perspective-independent facts about at what is simultaneous with what? At this global level. Uh, and so at a local level, mm -hmm. I mean, Einstein actually said it should have been called the kind of theory of absolutes. At a local level, we can talk about absolutes. And at a level of causal interaction, we can talk about absolutes. Um, but once we start kind of loosening things, both these kind of duration ideas and ordering ideas don't mm -hmm. no longer kind of obtain in this global sense. But like I said, crucially, uh, general relativity doesn't kind of distinguish between um, the universe going forward in time and the universe going backwards yeah. in time. There's no arrow of time in the equations at all. And this is our best theory of time. So it's quite strange that on the one hand, uh, we have this theory that predicts how clocks behave. On the other hand, the most kind of manifest aspect of time, the difference between the past and the future, it's just not in the theory. It's just this deep puzzle, right, that our subjective experience of time is so much about this very obvious arrow. There's the future, there's the past. And this is not like spatial distance. It is not like you being over there and okay. me being over here. Future, present, 
past are fundamentally different things, or at least that's how it seems. I mean, so and then in the of, physics, there's none of that. One, one way of putting it, I think it's a kind of common criticism that people who are, who are kind of skeptical of very scientific modes of thought about time put it, is that science is spatialized time. Um, mm. And that the project of kind of recovering time from a physics which has a very thin concept of time, yeah. I think it's a fascinating one. I, I, I'm optimistic that it can be done. Um, it may involve changing the laws, it may involve uh, very clever ways of thinking about how special initial conditions in the laws of physics can give rise to phenomena that we see. But that would actually make the direction of time contingent upon particular things that happened in the early universe, which again would be changing our perspective on what it really meant mm. the future and past to be different. So when you say physics is spatialized time, you sort of meet, you know, <laughs> When we think about space, you know, there really is no fundamental difference between over there and over here. They're just different, different points. And physics now thinks of time in the same way, that there's just these different points in a great big block of space-time. If we go back very far, um, we can think about the kind of space was a bit more like time. So if we go back to Aristotle, the centre of the Earth had a very privileged kind of role in the laws and in mm. the kind of conceptualization in, in theology and in the kind of entire cosmos. So there really was something special about exactly. being at that, that, that particular exactly. point. And moving away from the center of the earth was somehow moving towards the heavens. Uh, depending on what you're made out of, if you're made out of earth, um, that's unnatural and the natural thing is for you to go back. And so there was this idea about kind of directedness in space in Aristotle. But that's something that got, that got kind of removed as, phys as science moved on. And it's sometimes something we don't think about. Is, um, like the difference that we've evolved to have in our kind of cognitive and emotional lives between up and down, we take to be contingent to us living on this mm. planet uh, in a particular, uh, particular mm. kind of interests and goals. It's because um, we're the sort of evolved beings we are that up versus down has a special significance for exactly. us. Exactly. And maybe past versus future is like this that. This is the idea. So that maybe it's no, it's no more special difference between past and future uh, than the difference between up and down. It's this anthropocentric distinction. But I mean, we've got three such different perspectives on time now. I mean, it's, it's wonderful how different these perspectives are, I think. But I'd love to somehow bring you into dialogue with each other. I mean, Anne, I'd love to hear your reflections on what Karim's been saying. And I'm, I'm sort of led to ask, I mean, in these cases where our experience of time, you know, dissolves or becomes discontinuous, disrupted, could it be we're actually experiencing things more accurately? You know, that our ordinary sense of time is this illusion. We're more accurate when, when we stop seeing it that well, way. Well, that's not what we are seeing. Um, the, 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 Patients are sometimes a little bit more sensitive to some delays, that's true, but not consciously. Uh, they are actually very bad at uh, estimating or detecting an asynchrony between two stimuli. Um, they have difficulties to synchronize. Um, so, at least consciously, they are not better. Uh, and they are surprisingly more sensitive to some short asynchronies, but these short asynchronies m might be disruptive because mm. then they feel, for example, if they are tapping on a surface and, <laughs> and the surface comes a little bit later because we are 
doing an experience where it comes a little bit later. And uh, we are just ignoring these little delays. It happens when you are walking, well, the, the, there could be some uh, irregularities on, 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 uh, yeah, when, when you are walking and, and you don't, you are not bothered by this. But patients are. They are sensitive to this, but it's not pertinent. And then they feel not being in control of their action. And this is what then goes on, this then becomes conscious and it's bothering and it brings anxiety and, and not feeling as being at the origin of one's own action and, and this is disturbing in fact. I think control is a really interesting word there because I remember when we would kind of talk basic relativity and like, well, it's a personal train bouncing a ball, but then you're in space and it's doing that, and therefore speed, distance over time, suddenly it's all doesn't work. And as a 17 year old, you're sat there going, what? I'm looking down at this ball and it's moving faster because I'm in space, and what? And it's from a science fiction point of view, it's a moment where, as a kind of a human being, you're experiencing, on the one hand, this sense of godlike power. The universe literally is moving at a different speed based on where I am. And it's this incredible shock mode being like, my God, my brain, I am the universe. But it's also this moment of shocking humility and that loss of control, that moment of pure terror when you suddenly go, actually, if this is not a consistent thing, yeah, if actually yeah. like, speed doesn't equal distance over time, at least not in a nice solid way I thought it did, mm. it is a real moment of having the kind of solid mm. carpet yeah. Of, of structure pulled out of us. Again, predictions. We like structure. We like being able to make a prediction and have it regularly fulfilled. And so I think the idea of relativity in particular is a real carpet pull to humanity's self-stability. I mean, the thing that I actually been thinking about a bit, which I was going to put to both of you, is this actually emotional difference that we have between the past and the future. And no matter how many, how many times I've convinced myself by thinking about physics, that there isn't some fundamental difference between the past and the future. Mm. There's no way that I can emotionally, or at least I find it difficult to understand how I can emotionally think about the past and the future the same. Um, and think about memories. Um, like in a basic kind of scientific sense, it's quite difficult to distinguish between prediction and retrodiction. So we use a present record, present information, to make predictions about what the future will be like, to make retrodictions about what the past was like. But somehow we feel emotionally that these predictions about the future and these memories of mm. our identity and our past have to be different, because we are different. Uh, I don't relate to my future self the same way I relate to my past self. Um, so I don't know if this is something fundamental to all humans, it's something cultural to people of a certain background, but it seems to me that there's this emotional asymmetry, emotional arrow of time, that's something we really kind of have hardwired into us. I wonder if either of you feel the same way. I think Buddhism, and I'm going to grossly overgeneralize at this point, but um, apologies, I think Buddhism would say fundamentally that the way you get off the wheel, the incarnation wheel, is by recognizing almost the unreality of these ideas. Mm. Um, most of Buddhism is turning around and going, you think you're walking down the street now, but what you're doing is contemplating the past or thinking about the future and not actually in the now. And only by recognizing the immediate presence and the reality of these constructs 
that no longer exist as anything other than story, and indeed the future only exists as story, only by recognizing that these things are not real do you come into the present and hopefully attain enlightenment and get off the wheel of reincarnation. Gross overgeneralization, <laughs> but culturally I think there's something very relevant very in that. Nice. I think it's, it's relevant for actually a very old kind of philosophy has already yeah, kind of looked yeah. at this idea of time and gone, but is it though? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, moving from the, from the Buddha to uh, Cambridge philosopher Hugh Price, who wrote a book on time's arrow in, in the 90s, I think one of the ideas I've taken from, from Hugh's work is this thought that if you really buy into the idea of just time as a big block like space, no, no fundamental difference between the future and the past, it's just we're at a particular point in the big block. Mm -hmm. I mean, he argues this should be comforting because if you think of things that are lost to you in the past, you know, members of your family who used to be alive and are now not, you know, things that are gone to you, it would be kind of distressing to think they've been completely annihilated. And Hugh says, no, it's not like that. It's just like being separated in space. If, you're, you know, if your parents are in Australia, mm -hmm. there's something comforting about the thought, you know, they still exist, they're just in Australia. And we should think about the past in the same way. They're still real, they still ex exist. They're just in the past and thus separated from me. So there's, I mean, Karim, you were suggesting there's something um, emotionally difficult about this mm -hmm. idea of time as a big block. Maybe there's some things that are comforting about it too. I mean, I, I think I think it's even more emotionally difficult is the, there not being an objective past. The past actually changing as you change, as your memory changes, or as your personality mm. changes as you get older, your ways of understanding your own past change. <coughs> and I think, like, I guess the, the, the big tension is between like the kind of objective idea of a fixed set of events and, and the way things happen, or the way things are, and the, the kind of epistemic situation that we are of always having to use um, kind of finite resources, both in terms of our brains and our, our abilities, but also in terms of the, the kind of degrading records that we have um, to try and like right. project back. Um, and so I think that's, uh, I guess, the, the sense in which you can, even if the past is objective, you still lose it through not being able to mm. reconstruct it. It's still there, you know, like Australia, but we can genuinely lose all access or to can, certain parts of the past. We can misunderstand it. I think that's something that um, there's certainly a lot of going on uh, in Europe at the moment, of re-understanding the history of the 20th century in this really quite mm. unrealistic way to serve present purposes. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a, there's a kind of, um, there's a danger in being too subjectivist about the past, but there's also a danger in not recognizing that our epistemic standpoint regarding the past is always going to be a fragile one. But ironically, as we speak, the James Webb Telescope is giving us the best shot of billions of years ago we've ever had, sure. which is just mind-blowing that the past as our subjective experience is basically woo-woo nonsense. And not just woo-woo nonsense, woo-woo nonsense that almost certainly is influenced by a cultural construct that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation, because that's what the human species is and does. But at the same time, there is a reality that can be recorded in we time. Can, I mean, we can discover new tools, right? I mean, Jonathan knows a lot more about this than me, but this discovery of uh, ancient DNA techniques 
suddenly are allowed some things that were epistemically very difficult to find out about to be, mm. be much easier. Is this your understanding as well? Well, I mean, it's wonderful stuff, isn't it? The sort of use of uh, sort of genomics revolution and how it allows us to answer questions about how much we interbred with Neanderthals. You can get your DNA personally sequenced and work out what fraction of it is. Have you done this? I did, yeah. <laughs> well, this is private information. <laughs> <laughs> It revealed nothing too surprising. I think it was about 7% Neanderthal or something like that. But absolutely, the, the fact that the past is, things, of, elements of the past we thought might be totally lost, turn out not to be. Uh, there's, there's some optimism in that. And I want to, I mean, Claire, I want to ask you about the, the role of fiction in all this, because you could argue it's, it's something historical fiction does for us. It sort of improves helps maintain our access to certain kinds of periods in our history that we'd otherwise just lose access to. It does in as much as it gives us emotional access to stuff. Um, historical fiction's biggest tick, and I say this as someone currently writing historical fiction, boom. Um, historical fiction's biggest tick is that it reminds everyone that humans are humans are humans, are humans, are humans all the way down. It is very good at demolishing the barrier that is created by the idea that everyone in the 1800s must have talked like this and never swore. So it's good at humanizing the past. But fundamentally, most historical fiction is still doing exactly what most futuristic fiction is doing, which is telling a story about today. Um, I'm currently writing a series, well, it's written, it's done, go by, um, a Greek retelling of the story of Penelope, wife of, wife of Odysseus and the 20 years she had to spend running a kingdom while her husband was absent. And it turns out I have jumped on a very fashionable wave of feminist Greek retellings. Most of those feminist Greek retellings spend 400 pages going, oh, it was tough being a woman in the past, wasn't it? It really sucked. You're like, yes, true, it's good that we're talking about it, it's good that we're acknowledging this, but what is this adding to the present day? Literature, when it looks back to the past, is still fundamentally in conversation, not with the past. It's in conversation with the present. The fact these books are being written right now has nothing to do with the ancient Greek world and everything to do with now and me too and what's currently fashionable and trendy in the bookshelves. So we do have a conversation with the past, but it's often quite a navel-gazy conversation. It's, it's very rarely it's very ready to a level of intensity and accuracy that Hilary Mantel might pull off. A lot of the time, the really big historical fiction sellers are stuff like Philippa Gregory, which is great fun and nonsense. It's nonsense, but it feels nice in this present tense. We lie. We write as we lie for money. <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it, yeah. But it also so, feels reassuring, just to very quickly hammer that cultural point home. Mm. It feels reassuring because if we tell a story about the past, if we say, hey guys, oppressing woman, it's not cool. If we do it through the lens of the mm. past, it feels slightly safer than pointing a finger around this room and going, hey, you guys, yes, you right mm. here, right now, look at mm. yourselves. And so it's almost a slightly softer cushion. It makes us feel like maybe this is not about me, it's about there. So it can be a slightly almost cowardly, and again, I say this is a writer of historical fiction, a slightly cowardly way to communicate with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at this point, it'd be wonderful to take some questions from the audience, and that can be the, the audience in this room, but also the, uh, the audience online as well. And in fact, ideally, I would like to alternate between the two audiences. So questions can be on any topic as well. We've heard from Karim about the, the physics of 
time and whether there even is an arrow of time, really, in physics. Um, we've heard from Anne about the neuroscience of time and how experiences of time can vary between individuals and really vary quite dramatically in conditions like schizophrenia. And we've heard from Claire about how, as a novelist, uh, she works time and playing with time into both sci-fi and historical fiction. So questions would be great on any of those topics. Uh, just please put your hand up if you, if you have a question. Let's start here, second row. And please wait for the microphone to come to you so that the online audience can hear what you want to ask. Right. I just want to ask a question which I think you've kind of been answering in various different forms, but I'd like to put it kind of directly, which is, do you think that time is essentially an objective fact of physics, or is it a subjective biological and social construct that, that nature is designed to allow us to order our lives and live with others? Mm. Uh, I mean, I can say from my perspective, some bits of time, I think, are rooted in the kind of basic structure of physics, but I think it's a very thin aspect. I think a lot of the other bits of it, I'm, I'm not uh, kind of in a position to comment on, but I would imagine there's something to do with biology and subculture. There are some people who uh, say that their inner time is different from the uh, time outside, and that suggests that there is different times, right? It, it, it feels strange to hear that because you think there is only one time. But it, it is one argument, uh, in addition to many others, that uh, subjective time is, is not the pure reflection of something outside. It, the, the brain works with this, and, and then we have this impression, all these impressions of order written uh, duration, passage of time, etc. But this is worked out by the brain. Um, and as the final cultural thing, um, from a physics point of view, I completely concur. I think there are things where you just have to say energy has changed over insert value here, maybe time. Um, from a cultural point of view, I'm reminded that there is a cultural element, I think, between, say, the difference in, way, in the way a Zen monk on top of a mountain may experience half an hour to the way a 1980s Wolf of Wall Street banker might experience half an hour. I think it can be culturally constructed. We can have different cultural and societal relationships with the passage of time because we have different emotional relationships to what that time means, which alters our subjective experience. Is it a point of agreement among the three of you that there's no one thing that we mean by time? I mean, there's there's space-time, and physics tells us that's real. There's the experience of time, which is very multifaceted. Some aspects of it might be tracking something real, but many probably not. I would love physics to nail something consistent to hold on to and hug, but until that time... Right. I, no, I think that's a real longing, isn't it? We, we'd love physics to be more intelligible than it is. <laughs> and and with the, with, this is true with, with quantum theory as well, and, uh, as well as general relativity, that it seems to be I mean, presenting where, us with a picture of the world that's really unintelligible. Actually. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's most... I mean, I, I was very careful to talk about general relativity, because once you start thinking about quantum mechanics and time, things get very confusing. Um, there's actually some suggestion that when you combine general relativity with quantum mechanics, you actually get no time at all. Um, and, and 
that things get even more difficult. Um, but this is very speculative, so we don't know yet. Um, I, I'm kind of hold, holding out hopes that the people who think of this kind of timeless picture have made a mistake. And actually, we, we ought to keep some notion of time in, in future physics. We won't just have to lose all of it. Do you think it's okay, I mean, in physics, to appeal to intuitiveness and our everyday experience as a consideration? Or should we just say that carries no weight at all? I think there's a, I mean, probably in this the distinction between, now we're at, we're at the LSE, so I can make this distinction, between the context of discovery and the context of justification. And so I think in the context of looking for theories of time, definitely. Yeah. Probably in the context of justifying them, I'm not sure. Right. I think we really need... Yeah. Just got to follow where the evidence actually leads. Um, so, Johan, do we have a question from the online audience? Please uh, speak into the microphone. Hey, so I think this question is, is in line with, with what you, you just said about the fact that, that this is a question from Maxwell, by the way. So, we, we've discussed physical, perceptual, and psychological time, and each of these is distinct. Is there anything that substantially connects this phenomena? And if not, whether or not we should throw out the fundamental concept of, of time. So I think there definitely is some, something that putatively connects them, which is the fact that we're in an entropy gradient. And so the, the sun is giving us all this lovely coherent radiation, and we're bouncing off loads of not very coherent information. Um, and so ultimately, like our culture, our civilization, life, it has some kind of gradient in time coming from our, our interaction with this very ordered um, yeah. solar system or ordered sun. Um, and so I think that, that could tie everything together. It's still not entirely clear to me how, because yeah. entropy is a very slippery concept. And I, I'm not really convinced that some of the kind of broad brush strokes of, of what, the, what the stories people tell about yeah. entropy and life and information really hang together. But in principle, this seems like somewhere along the right lines. It's that idea of a thermodynamic arrow of time that I mentioned at the beginning, isn't it? That's not really there in the fundamental physics, not really there in relativity, but it's not just about our experience either. It's about sure. contingent facts about the, the kind of bit of space in which we live. Exactly, and also about the special initial condition of the solar system that you start off with all this lovely ordered hydrogen and stuff, and that's, that's the kind of mm. seed of, of, the, of the arrow. Um, but exactly how the, the details of how that connects up to, to uh, evolution, you'll have to tell us uh, about yourself. But uh, evolution to psychology, I really don't know. Well, uh, uh, there is a science that is called psychophysics. <laughs> and, uh... It's the most dodgy sounding real science <laughs> in the world, isn't it's it? It's not dodgy at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, it consists in trying to find the laws uh, by which you can uh, have something in the real world and how you perceive it. So there are still people, and, and when we are doing experimental psychology, that's what we do actually, we, we measure with um, electronics um, mm -hmm. exact times and we are very careful that uh, it's exactly what we think it is. Um, yeah, and, and then we measure the uh, psychological response. So yeah, but that's all. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you can relate, of course, the physical 
um, theories with the psychological time, but still it's not completely disconnected. Literature and culture does, generally speaking, regard immortality, which is not following the entropy gradient in its fundamental form, as aberrant throughout all of culture, unless you are literally the almighty upon high, immortality is aberration. Be a sexy vampire through to your person who's just not dying for a thousand years is fundamentally in culture often felt as just wrong. There it does seem to be this cultural thing of if you are not progressing towards death or the end of the entropy gradient, you're not doing it right. I mean, Karen, I sort of want to ask about um, is Stephen Hawking's brief history of time still a good introduction to these issues? Because I remember reading that, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, I think, with really great excitement because it's doing this, it's trying to do this ambitious thing you were just describing, somehow relating the psychological arrow to the physics through the thermodynamic arrow. Does it stand up to the test mean, of time I, I itself? Some of the ideas are, are really groundbreaking, I mean, in particular to do with the early universe and singularities. I think if Stephen Hawking had lived a bit longer, he probably would have got the Nobel Prize with, with Roger Brenner, so they're really fantastic. But I'm, I'm not sure everything he wrote is convincing. I think probably the best, um, well, I should say, the best, um, more technical introduction to questions about time is probably Brian's book. Um, but if, if I think uh, a very famous book about time um, from, from a few years ago is Carlo Rovelli's the order of time, which yeah. a lot of the, the, the issues that I talked about touched on. Carlo is actually one of the people who, who, who argues for uh, fundamentally there being no time in quantum gravity, mm. so, um, which I disagree with him about. But that, that I think would probably be more up to date than the Hawking book. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm not sure there's a clear way of connecting the psychological mm. arrow in that either. Yeah. Okay, so should we take another question from the room? Great. So, uh, yes, let's go to third row from the back and then we'll, uh, from the front and then we'll work, uh, work our way backwards. Thank you very much for the discussion. Um, I was wondering if there is any conclusive uh, uh, study in cognitive science and how uh, traumatic experience can change our experience of time permanently and if it's reversible? Well, I, I am not a specialist of trauma, but indeed uh, in trauma you have these intrusive memories that comes to you, that come to you uh, and disrupt your train of thought uh, because you will relieve the trauma uh, not in a controlled way. It's not as if you would uh, voluntarily evoke a memory, it really comes to you. And in a way, it can be thought as, um, yeah, disturbing the train of thought. Um, I'm not sure it really disrupts the, the continuity of time. And of course, it's emotionally charged. So each time there is emotion, it affects the speed of time for you. Uh, so in, in this way, uh, yeah, it, it can affect timing. Okay, and Johan, do we have another online uh, question? Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like 
why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. This is a question from Daniel, Daniel Zen, for Dr. Caring. So what do you think of the concept of word lines, that is to say the path traced through space-time space by individual particles, and whether with these lines is there a possibility for a geometry of time? Thanks. Uh, so, I mean, in a sense, that's what I was talking about when I was talking about uh, local time. And so I, I think this is perhaps the comforting thing we get from relativity is that um, if you imagine space-time like a block, like we talked mm -hmm. about, um, you can think about the history of an individual like a little worm going through the block. And that's exactly mm -hmm. the, the world line. And what, what relativity tells us is that um, the kind of proper time, the time that was measured, would be measured by an ideal clock going along this world line is an objective thing. Um, and so there's a sense in which there's both the ordering and the time distance of events along these world lines at this local level are really kind of matters of fact. They're kind of concrete anchored in, in, in reality, according to the theory. Uh, and you can translate this into observable quantities like the duration measured by one of these clocks. And we can build things that approximate the, these ideal clocks. We can go and experiment with them and see that the, the prediction of the theory for what it says the clock should read ends up being true. And so that's the sense in which there's a really strong objective notion of time in, in, in relativity, so long as you're talking about the time along, along a world line. And so for each of us, our kind of um, trajectory through space-time is something real, and the, the, the time that an ideal clock would, if we kind of carried it around with us, measure is also something real according to the theory. Am I right in thinking that, in theory at least, the world lines can go in a loop? So the I, eternal recurrence idea could actually happen? So this really depends a lot on the kinds of universe you have. And so overall, the universe we have doesn't have that kind of geometry. Mm. Um, but there's certain ways in which it could happen, near black holes in particular. Um, and this idea is actually very old, I think all, probably 100 years old now. It's actually first kind of constructed by a kind of logician called Kurt Gödel. Um, and so they're called closed time-like curves. So it really is exactly what you said, uh, a loop uh, that's, that's time-like. You can imagine that someone can traverse it, that comes back on itself. Um, a lot of work goes into trying to come up with ways to prohibit these kind of structures within the theory. And we don't have any good evidence that the universe that we live in has these structures. But in principle, the theory allows these things mm. to exist, which really would be a world line that, that mm. loops back on itself. Mm. And we, uh, we did an event on black holes like this one a few years ago. So if you're interested in black holes, uh, the and recording we, is, uh, is on our website. And who knows, we might do it again in the future. Yeah. So um, we, that, was, that was an online one. Let's take another one from in the room. Um, let's go right to the back this time. Uh, Please wait for the microphone to come to you so that the online audience can hear the question. It's back row, uh, second from the, the left. Um, hi, I heard you mention that with schizophrenia you experience, um, and they experience, they don't experience continuous time. 
So what do you think is the cause for this? Would you say it's something like neurological or is it caused by other symptoms of schizophrenia, like the, um, the overwhelming intrusive thoughts? Okay. Um, so uh, generally, uh, schizophrenia has organic uh, causes. And um, so something in the brain is causing that. And, um, um, it's very related with the sense of self, but these time disorders have been reported before the onset of psychosis. So it's quite early. Uh, so of course there is all the development. So uh, it's not as if it's just uh, popping out and it's the first event in the pathology. Um, so cause and effects in these pathologies, because they are neurodevelopmental, is in fact a difficult question. Uh, but, but it's not caused by other symptoms that are installed once the conversion has happened. That's all I can say for now. Mm. Do you think it's something that might be a useful early warning sign? Yeah, yeah that's the idea. It has been, well, uh, Self-disorders uh, are thought by some psychiatrists as uh, being one sign that should attract attention and, mm. and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and see whether something might occur in the future. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, not to panic, uh, <laughs> there is a lot of people who are at risk yeah. of developing uh, psychosis, especially when they are teenagers, and um, they should they should go and consult and, and see whether, because a lot of um, just um, care can help and prevent yeah. conversion. Um, so they sh should not hesitate. But in fact, all the people at risk, among these people, there is only less than 30% that really develop psychosis. So, so yeah. that's a challenge to, to see mm -hmm. who, will, who is really at risk. So yeah, self and time might be mm -hmm. a possibility. Good. So let's go, to, uh, no, let's go to a question in the, in the room. Um, there was another one in the back row. So let's do the other one in, in the back row and then we'll come forwards again. Um, if time uh, in physics is kind of like uh, there's no real distinction between past and future, uh, can you change the past the same way that you can kind of change the future uh, by things that you do during the present? That's a very good question. I mean, I'm not sure. I guess part of it depends upon what we mean by changing the future. Um, so I, I guess a lot of the idea really comes from drawing a line between uh, things we can manipulate and things we can't manipulate. Um, and again, uh, I mean, there are approaches to try and understand the asymmetry of agency um, without having a fundamental difference between past and future, not something I've worked on. But actually, again, Hugh Price... Yeah, Hugh Price thinks you, you can alter the past, right? There is, there is uh, a certain kind of retro-causality, which many have argued doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I think that was a, a bad approach to the branding of the idea. I think now they call it causal symmetry. Um, so I think the idea of like, what it means to change something really depends to some extent on bracketing um, exogenous and endogenous variables in some kind of way that you can think about what it is to manipulate um, mm. 
is kind of subjective. Yeah. Um, I think there's also a question about um, in what sense we're, we're free, in what sense we make decisions about yeah. the future. Um, often that's about um, a kind of differing between the um, kind of scale in which physics is talking about and the scale in which we're talking about making decisions. Um, and so at the level of a um, kind of fundamental physical description, you, can't, you don't have this agent able to make decisions, make, make kind of um, choices. And the idea, I think, as so much as I understand it, is that in a kind of coarser grain description, we can somehow recover the, the impression of agency from this kind of fundamentally non, kind of, kind of there is no choices fundamentally, but we can have the kind of impression of choices. But this isn't something I think I, I know much about, say that much more, but there are at least proposals that people have that allow some kind of um, causal symmetry, but they're also, in a sense, deflating the whole idea of causal agency. Um, I think there are some people who, who, who've advocated this stronger notion of retrocausality, where it's really, yeah. there is a full-blooded sense of cause and agents being able mm. to causally uh, affect the future and the past. Yeah. Um, and that, I agree, is a little bit um, strange. Mm. Makes me think of the film Tenet. There's a, there's a lot of backward causation in that one. So let's um, go to the other side of the room now and have a question from the, the fourth row from the back, I think. Hi, so I was just wondering how the idea of a sort of single direct line of time can be remedied with the theory of um, particles that can go backwards in time, like antimatter. Now we're really unfortunate that Brian's not here, because this is actually, again, one of the things this book's his thing, yeah. a huge amount. And so there's one little thing that I didn't mention, which Brian would have mentioned, um, that's really connected to this, is that there's some evidence of time asymmetry in a particular type of nuclear process. Um, I, I think it's chion decay, uh, I won't remember. Again, Brian, read Brian's book. And so there's, there's some evidence and some idea that you can get um, something like an hour of time out of these very kind of particular and special types of processes. Um, there's also this idea of, of particles going backwards in time, which is, I mean, it's not something I fully think is um, exactly what the equations say. It's certainly part of the, the diagrammatic language that Feynman invented to describe particles, and it's certainly related to some of the um, structure that Brian writes about in his book, but I'm not sure it's enough to really have a, um, yeah. I'm not convinced it's enough for an hour of time as yet. I guess um, one of the biggest issues- And it's also not being reconciled with the relativity theory, which is the theory of the parts. Yeah, there's always this issue of how the, how the formalism, how the mathematics relates to the metaphysics. You know, which bits are we going to take really seriously as guides to reality, and which bits are we going to say, oh, that's convenient, but it's not really how it is. And, uh, one of the biggest questions in physics is always um, how to interpret symmetries in the equations um, and to see if there are symmetries in, in the world. And so, <coughs> With the exception of this very subtle um, decay process, um, we find almost all the physics theories we, we kind of play with, um, we find the symmetry of, of running time backwards. Um, and the extent to which we should understand that as meaning that time in the world could, 
things would be the same whether we run time forwards or backwards. It's really interesting. It's kind of an interpretive question. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I have a civilian ignorant question. It goes something like this. Again, you're 17, you're taught that you've looked at a particle, and by looking at a particle you've changed it, because photon hit, photon backs, and therefore by observing the universe you've changed it. You're talking about the idea of particles essentially moving backwards to time, having a different relation with time from our perception. How can we, as people who experience the world going this way, measure or even begin to experiment upon that? Like, uh, is it essentially Heisenberg? Do we change the nature of time by observing time? What do? My mind is blown. Help. <laughs> um, I mean, so one of the other things I wanted to avoid talking about was the measurement problem. Amazing. Go. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, at least personally, I, I think the original Heisenberg picture of the kind of intervening, materially changing, doesn't stand up, to, hasn't stood up to the test of time, uh, ironically. Um, and really, there is a version of that, which is a kind of version of, of what his, his mentor, Niels Bohr, advocated for, which is a bit more, more subtle. Um, it's like the conditions of measurement um, dictate what was measured, um, that people still do defend. Uh, I mean, certainly it's not the most popular option. Other options are equally bonkers, um, one of which is retrocausality, one of which is many worlds, yeah. and one of which is superluminal, um, or not quite superluminal, but a-causal uh, magical particles that uh, go everywhere, which is the, the Bohmian approach, which some people are uh, very happy with, but has problems with relativity, and also has yeah. this kind of strange, mysterious ontology with these, these, these particles that can um, be non-locally influenced by, by conditions, yeah. which in some sense is a little bit like the Heisenberg thing. But certainly the role of the observer in all of these, apart from the Bohr one, is really removed. And I think most people in the interpretation of quantum mechanics want to get the observer out. But then about the particles thing, really the, what the experiment showed isn't that there's time asymmetry, because we can't run things backwards. Mm. What they showed is that processes um, with a particular um, orientation in space, um, particular handedness, um, are preferred over other processes. And the way that you can kind of, you kind of, you can combine some of these symmetries and kind of infer this means that the uh, process should be asymmetric in time. So it's a kind of complex web of, of inferences based upon an experiment which violates particular parity symmetry, plus the mathematics and the physics that leads to this, um, this violation of this, this time symmetry. Um, so it, it, it is, I mean, very difficult to work out what physicists are talking about most of the time. <laughs> As someone who does this professionally, I, 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 feel, I feel for your 17-year-old self, but it doesn't get that much easier as you get older. Just, <laughs> ultimately, there's just more things to be confused about. So I've got time for one more question. That would be a good note to leave it on, but one, one more question, and uh, there's another one from that row fourth from the back there. Let's, uh, Go there again. Hello. Uh, my question is mainly regarding physics. So because of the special relativity and time dilution, if we were to travel with, let's say, an infinite speed, we reach a point where time stops, right, theoretically. And we just said that time is continuous. But if time stops, then is time really continuous? And if so, is there really a future? And one more thing, which is regarding the past, 
based on Einstein's wormholes, basically areas of space-time which connects two different dimensions, we can travel to the past. And if we were to travel to, to the point which basically the past had, has shaped us, if we travel to that very point, what exact, how exactly does that affect this arrow of time, which in essence is a methodology of you have the past that has affected you and you have the future that you're waiting to shape it. So if you travel there, how exactly does this affect the arrow of time? Okay, so I'll try and answer all the questions. Uh, so the first one, you don't actually even need to go infinitely fast for time to stop. So nothing close to that. You only actually need to get to the speed of light. But unfortunately the problem is that the faster you go, um, the heavier your, heavier your effective mass is. And so the more energy you need to put in to accelerate. And so actually what you'd need to get even to the speed of light as a massive body is actually an infinite amount of energy. Um, and so I think we probably don't have quite that much energy available. So luckily, in a sense, yeah. well, whatever... Well, if Brian were here, maybe we would. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so we'll probably... Ne like, it's not really something that we can conceive of as material bodies um, to get to the speed of light. What it would be like, however, and this is a really interesting question, to be a sentient being that was made entirely out of light, which in principle is possible, is a good question. Perhaps for them, time wouldn't exist, and certainly not in the way that, yeah. that we think about it. Um, and then I think that this, the second question, um, in a sense, goes back to what we were talking about earlier. And so really the important thing is that the, uh, the way in which these um, kind of wormhole solutions be constructed is really contingent upon particular properties of theory. Um, I, I actually know for a fact, but my, I think the idea is that ultimately they turn into something closer to the close time-like curves in any case. Um, but ultimately, no matter what you do with these kind of exotic things in relativity theory, um, you're not actually kind of... Because the theory doesn't have the structure that differentiates the past and the future anyway, it has determinate world lines, as, as someone on, on the internet um, kind of pointed to. You don't really have the richness in the theory to describe these kind of grandfather paradox type things. And so it's not clear whether the, how the theory kind of adjudicates what would happen. Because the theory itself just gives you these world lines and allows you to, to loop them back if you want. It doesn't give you the um, idea of agency and someone choosing whether or not to, mm. to I, I mean, it's probably not nice to kill their grandfather. Persuade their grandfather not to meet their grandfather. It's <laughs> probably a kind of way of putting it. So, so, I'm, not, so I'm not sure. I, I think um, at a kind of simple level, even if you have wormholes or closed time-like curves, you just get determinate ordered facts. Sometimes the ordering can loop back on itself, but you don't get these kind of paradoxes of trying to yeah. within the theory. Um, yeah. But who knows? Mm. Thanks. So we'll have to leave it there. We just have to note that I mean, Brian Roberts has written a, a brilliant book, Reversing the Arrow of Time. You can get a free PDF of the book. Um, there's a short link, bit.ly slash Roberts book, if you want to go directly to the, uh, the PDF. Um, there's also physical copies, which you can buy from all good bookshops, but also outside uh, the door if you want to uh, get, a, get a physical copy on the way out. Uh, thanks very much for all of your questions. It just remains to say thank you very much to all of our panelists for a fascinating discussion about the subjective and objective sides of the arrow of time.
Thanks to all of you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.